All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there and a place you can ask us questions. And for the rest of you, as a run-up to our missions conference next week, we have a great uh, guest speaker coming in. If you don't know who it is, it'd be a surprise. And if you do know who it is, you're looking forward to it. So this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 29. And while you're finding the apps there on your phones or turning there in your Bibles, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Oh Lord God, as we come before your holy word this morning, we ask that you would help us to hold it firm in our hearts. That we would know what accords with sound and true doctrine. That we may be transformed by your grace. Make us sober-minded, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. Now, Lord, for your salvation has appeared in Jesus Christ and your word then trains us for, to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Oh, Lord, would you make that true? May we look like Christ. May we ourselves see Christ the Word incarnate, as we submit to you today. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So to get us into the mindset of Colossians, I want to remind you of a book many of you may know from your childhood or from your adulthood, reading to your own kids. Pretty famous book. I think we have a picture of it here to show you. Anybody familiar with this book here? The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. Yeah, The Giving Tree. Basically, spoiler alert, sorry, out of love for the little boy, the tree sacrifices everything. And in the end, the last page of the book says, and the tree was happy. That's what we're going to talk about today. The idea of sacrificing as a key to finding joy, a key to finding happiness. We're in the book of Colossians, and Colossians is written by a prisoner. His name is Paul. He was in prison willingly. All he had to do was not be so uncompromising about the gospel. But he willingly chose to suffer instead of compromise for this gospel. And in his imprisonment, he had heard from the pastor of this church at Colossae that it was suffering under false teaching. Now, Paul did not plant this church. Paul had never been there. Paul did not know these people. He'd never met them. But he hears about this, and he has such a kingdom mindset for the whole church, such a concern about them doubting this simple gospel of Jesus Christ. He's burdened that they know the truth, and so he wants to help them, but there's a problem. He's writing to a church that probably knows of him, but they don't know him. So he has a credibility problem. He's in prison. Now, in case you think that shouldn't be that big of a deal for Christians in ancient Rome, remember that most of the Gentile religions were legal. Judaism was legal. It was not a common thing for someone to be imprisoned for a religious reason. Paul was officially in prison as a subversive, as a troublemaker. And his message would be received by the Colossians with a little bit of suspicion. Very familiar or similar, I should say, to many of us nowadays talking to our fellow Americans. 
and what many of our missionaries, you can ask them next week, have dealt with for decades in other countries. There's a suspicion about Christians. What's your real motive? What do you really want? And so what does Paul do to justify his suffering, to justify that he's in prison? He shows them that he roots his suffering in the joy of the gospel. He shows them that my suffering is actually joy in the gospel. He shows them that the bigger reality in his life is not Roman suffering, but the gospel joy that he has, even in prison. That's the big picture of his life. And so with our missions conference coming up, you know, we're, we're looking out over the movement of the gospel over the whole world. And we must acknowledge today that thousands, hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters across the globe live with the knowledge that if they give their reason for the hope that is in them publicly, they could go to jail or worse. And yet they don't remain silent. They can't remain silent. And we see they live in joy, not fear. I have loved these 30 days of prayer things we're getting for our missions committee. I know you can't do that all the time. It's a lot of work. But if y'all could figure out some way to do that maybe monthly or something, that'd be awesome. I, I just, I've been struck by that reminder almost every day of y'all need to be discreet with these. Some of, them, some of these people serve in very difficult situations. I mean, even this morning, the one we got, you know, we're, we can't say where she even is. And most of you, like me, are probably surprised. Like, she has to be secretive there? That, I, I thought that country was cool. What? Isn't it amazing, though? You get these messages. You have to be discreet. Don't tell where we are. And they've all been joyful reports. They've all had this joy in their hearts. There's a jovial tone to these emails showing joy and the challenges all around them. And today, even in this room, if we kind of bring it down a scale, there are people in this room facing pain, facing heartache, facing struggles, facing relationship struggles, financial struggles, health struggles, even death. And they are doing so in joy. So here's the question today before we go to the text. We're going to get there, I promise. Is where is the joy in your life? Where does it come from? With that in mind, let's look together at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. This is God's Word. <clears throat> now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. So I want to give you a sentence here to try to remember this. Here's what we're going to try to do today, see if we can do this. It's God empowers us with joy when we willingly suffer for the gospel. God empowers us with joy when we willingly suffer for the gospel. So you want to get some joy in your life? 
Here's the key. Now let's see if we can actually see that here in this text. First thing Paul tells us is that he's rejoicing in his suffering. He starts out, look with me at verse 24. He says what? He goes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in the next part, people kind of freak out a little bit. He says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What? Did, did, did Christ not suffer enough? Does Paul have to suffer to help save the Colossians? Well then, does that mean that we have to suffer to save ourselves a little bit? It kind of looks like it. Well, there's nothing here like that at all. One of the great joys of going to seminary is also one of the great trials is learning that, guess what? Greek is not English. (laughs) It's way different. And the Greek here is weird. But it's not unclear. Here's how we did it for the kids, kind of clear this up. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 24. It says this. It says, Now I joyfully do my duty of suffering, which Christ gave me for y'all, his church. You see, the idea of Christ's suffering somehow lacking is really that Paul recognizing, recognized that his calling is to suffer. And he hadn't quite done it all yet. Now, most of us have some sort of calling as Christians to suffer. There's usually some sort of thing. But if you remember the book of Acts where where Paul is coming to Christ, one of the things that is said by someone else, like, Paul, him? The person actually in prayer says, Lord, do you know what you're doing? You remember where the Lord responds and says, he is going to be my chosen vessel for the suffering of the gospel. I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for the gospel. So Paul had this unique calling to do some serious suffering for the gospel. And Paul realized, I hadn't done it all yet. There's still something lacking in the afflictions Christ has for me. It's an assignment from Christ for Paul. And Paul has joy then in doing what Christ has laid out before him. Just like Christ has determined that many of us in the room who are serious about our faith, we are going to suffer in some way for that. It might be minor, it might be more significant. But if you're serious about your faith, you are going to suffer. See, and by wording it this odd way, what Paul is doing is he wants the original readers to stop and go, whoa, what? That's that's not right. Because he's reminding them of the close connection between Christ and his church. See, because we belong to Christ, when we suffer, the promise of Scripture is actually that Christ suffers as well. And so since there's more for Christians to suffer, there's still more for Christ to suffer. There's still afflictions that Christ has to endure. He holds us that close that when His people suffer, He suffers. God is with His hurting people. See, Jesus Christ not only suffered for us, the promise of Scripture is ongoing. He suffers with us. Oh, don't read this like something's lacking in Jesus' suffering. Because that leaves us open to thinking that we have to do something significant to be right with God, that we have to suffer some. Because after all, if if Christ's sufferings are incomplete, then we have to make up the difference, right? Right? Paul is not saying that our suffering aids in our salvation. But many of us fall into that trap, don't we, of thinking that. I want to help us understand that by showing you an extreme example. I want to show you this uh, tourist site 
this nice historical place. It's called the Scala Santa. Right there, look how pretty that is. Don't you want to go visit that? This is in Rome. These are called the Holy Stairs. These are supposedly the stairs that Jesus Christ ascended up to Pilate's palace in the 4th century. They were removed from Palestine, put in this church in Rome. And then, 123 years ago, in 1893, Pope Leo XIII said, If you ascend the stairs on your knees, praying about Christ's suffering the whole time, you will earn 300 days less time in purgatory. First step. 28 times 300, that's a lot. And you can transfer it to someone who's already dead too. Now it sounds silly, doesn't it? Look at this next picture. Thousands of people a year to this day do it. Now don't laugh. These people are desperate to be right with God. And they have been taught that Jesus is not enough. They are doing whatever it takes to make up the difference in suffering for their own sin. But we are not called to suffer to save ourselves. Christ's suffering on the cross paid the penalty in full for our sin. So we don't do stuff like this. And we may be able to say that, yes, Christ's suffering paid the price in full. But we don't live that way, do we? In our doubts, in our fears, in our suffering, we don't rest on Christ and the gospel. We rest in our religious works, our goodness, our traditions. Or we fall into despair because we know we can't fix it. We have nothing to rest on, we think. We we may not climb stairs on our knees, but we too look to our efforts instead of looking to Jesus alone. See, suffering is part of the Christian life. But it is not to earn our salvation. Christ did that. He earned our salvation. But being a disciple in the world brings about suffering. What sufferings Christ has in store for us are to spread the gospel, not create the gospel. And we can have joy in those sufferings if we recognize that Christ is right there with us in them. We are filling up what is lacking in his afflictions because his church is not done suffering, so Christ is not done suffering, so he's participating with us. We are never closer to Christ than we are going through the junk and the pain of life. He's right there with us. And he has called us to suffer through those things to grow us up. And so we can rejoice in our sufferings because we have a gospel worth suffering. Look with me at verse 27. Paul says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That's plural, by the way, so read that. Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. So here's what Paul's getting at. Why do you and I read the Old Testament? If we do. Why do we value it? We're not Jewish. It wasn't our ancestors in the Exodus. See, what was hidden, the mystery that he speaks of, is the gospel of God's grace, which is in the Old Testament, of taking that message to the nations, not just restricting it to one people. 
I mean, think about it. A bunch of random Gentiles like us? We could become the people of God? We could become sons of Abraham? The book of Galatians says, if you believe in Christ, you're an heir of Abraham. Us? We could become the sons of God, even though we're Gentiles, and we could be together with ancient and current Jewish people who believe in Christ, and we could be one mysterious body? All by the work and suffering of Jesus Christ. See, that's the mystery. The mystery is that Christ is among His people. See, it's not Christ in me, it's Christ in we. And Paul says that idea is so worth suffering for. Because Jesus not only adopts us, He is with us. Remember Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Those of you who aren't very versed in in, in the New Testament, that's okay. Paul is a a persecutor of the church. He's riding a horse to go to another town with official letters to arrest and beat some Christians. He's about to have a good day. He's all into this. He is knocked off his horse by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the Lord Jesus comes and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And he doesn't say, my church. He doesn't say, Christians. He doesn't say, my people. You remember what he says? Why are you persecuting? Anybody know? Me. That's right. And Paul, or Saul, says what you would say. Who are you? See, Jesus is that close to his people that when they were being persecuted, Jesus was receiving those blows. Do you know Jesus like that? The Jesus who has made his home with his people. The mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in we. He is with us. Are you part of that Christ? Are you part of his family? Because that's the mystery. I mean, God is holy. He is uncompromising in his purity. He cannot be close to and dwell with sinners like us. He cannot do it. He has nothing but wrath for our sin, and we are guilty before him, justly deserving his displeasure. But to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin... God has provided Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice our sins deserve. Even more, Jesus lives the perfect life that God demands. And God credits that perfection to us when we, by faith, confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And then through Jesus Christ's sufferings, we are made a purified, holy people. And God dwells with us by the Holy Spirit. That is a gospel we're suffering for. And Paul reminds us of that. Look with me at verse 28. He says what? He says, Him we proclaim. Not this. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, it's Christ we proclaim. Not morality, not religious works, not be good. We proclaim Christ as the gospel to all. Because the gospel is so good. We love Christ and we want to share Him. And like Paul, we want to see people grow up and be mature and fulfilled in Christ. See, the gospel is not simply get saved. The gospel is to grow people up to be fulfilled, joyful disciples. I know a lot of people who have been saved who aren't joyful, who aren't disciples. And you do too. But the joy comes from seeing people grow 
up into that discipleship, and it usually happens through suffering. Look with me, boys and girls, at your verse 28. Here's how we put it for you. I want to make sure you're tracking with me. It says this, So we tell everyone about Jesus. We warn everybody we can. We teach everybody who will listen as best we can so that we will be a grown-up church for Jesus. Don't you want to be part of a grown-up church? That's what Paul says is the joy of suffering. I just want to see people grow up and be happy. See, Paul expends himself for the gospel, even though it brings him suffering. Because he knows that the gospel is worth it. And God's people are worth it. It empowers them. Now, does that describe Trinity? Is that what we are known for? Expending ourselves for the gospel. Your session does. Your missions committee wants to be known for that. See, the Apostle Paul wants that for the Colossians. Because in that gospel, we are then empowered for suffering. Look with me at verse 29. It says this. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul expends himself for the gospel. It brings him suffering, but he pours out his life for the suffering anyway because the gospel's worth it. God is with his people, and that reality empowers Paul. In fact, look at these words he uses there. That idea of I toil, that's actually a word used for athletic training. You know, those of you who played football, remember grass drills? Coaches make you do it until you vomit almost. That's what he's talking about. We actually get our word agonizing from the Greek word for struggling there. So Paul says, I train like an athlete. I agonize with all my energy, with all God's energy. You know, many of us in the room are exercisers. I know many of you go to the Y, and many of you have, do things at home, you run. And most of us who do it, we do it for our health. Not because, man, I just can't wait to run, it's awesome. I know there's a few of you weirdos, and that's you, that's not me. Yeah, I mean, you know, John Mark, super skinny in shape guy up here, he, actually, no, he was kind of large and pre-diabetic in his 30s. And he decided, you know what, Shay and the kids are worth me fixing that. I've told you before, I, in my 20s and 30s, I was in terrible shape. I had the profile of a fire hydrant. I'm, I'm a little better now, I hope. And I, I was embarrassed in fire department training in my mid-30s. I was so out of shape, it was just ridiculous. And I was the father of three children at the time. I was, you know, they deserve better. I loved them enough. I was willing to suffer to get into better shape. And it took me months of toil and agonizing struggle to get to where I could run 10, 15 miles a week. But I did it joyfully. Because I was suffering for someone else's good. And most of you have stories like that too. If you've made a significant change in your life, it's usually because somebody else would benefit from it, not because it would help you. And so you joyfully endured that. That's what Paul's talking about here. He purposely makes every effort in his service to the church. He exerts himself to see the church flourish because he loves Christ and so he loves Christ's people, he's willing to suffer for them. See, in that last part of verse 29, there is the key. All of this energy from God, what? That God powerfully works within Paul. See, God is working in Paul. Strength from God enables Paul to agonize 
for the gospel. Paul was empowered to suffer. He was in prison willingly. All he had to do was compromise on that Jesus stuff and he'd be a free man, but he wouldn't do it because he was empowered by this gospel. He knew that his suffering was good for the church, and so he did it, but not in his own strength. This is not, so you better suck it up and tighten it up and get a stiff upper lip and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and other silly metaphors we have and do it. Now this is Paul sitting back saying, I don't have this in me, but God powerfully works in me in his gospel that's so beautiful that I'm empowered to toil and struggle. Literally, we translate this last part of verse 29. I love this translation. So I almost laughed out loud when I was working on this. It says this, agonizing as God's energy energizes me. See, in other words, the worth of the gospel, the joy of suffering turns Paul into this. Go ahead, next picture. Remember this guy? Come on, no chuckles? That was, seriously? There we go, thank you. Okay, those of you who are probably, what, under 25 maybe, have no idea what this is. Okay, this is the Energizer Bunny. He would, like, interrupt almost any commercial in the 1990s. Didn't matter what commercial, what it was for, he would come walking through. He just keeps on going. See, what in your life brings you such joy that it energizes you? What do you love enough to suffer for? Paul rejoiced and was willing to suffer because the gospel is worth it. So as I wrap this up, I want to end with the question I began with. Where is the joy in our life? What is it that we love and so we are willing to suffer for? Could it be that the reason so many of us are unenthusiastic and frankly just kind of bored about life is because we lack the joy that comes from willingly sacrificing and struggling. I don't like to seek out struggle and sacrifice, and I imagine I'm not alone. Instead, what do we do? We're tr- what we're trained to do. We, we seek comfort. We seek luxury. Instead of choosing sacrifice, instead of choosing suffering, even though that suffering endures, we've done that, haven't we? And there's no real joy in that, is there? but Christ will meet us with joy when we suffer for Him. It's the promise of God's Word. And providentially, many of us in this room are going to be given the opportunity to suffer willingly for the Gospel. I want to give you a very specific application. It's not even that big of a deal, actually. We're coming up on our missions conference, and for many of you who are new to the Presbyterian system, or maybe you don't quite understand the Presbyterian system works, we don't contribute to a big fund at denominational high command that they then pay our missionaries out of. That's not how it works. Instead, based on what we see in the book of Acts specifically and based on the model throughout the New Testament, each church directly supports missionaries. We don't go through an anonymous bureaucracy. We have a relationship with our missionaries. And so each missionary comes to each church to get support. And so we support that through a fund called the Faith Promise. This is in addition to our general budget, 
which the church, we have a certain chunk of our general budget we give to missions. But in addition to that giving, above and beyond your tithe, in other words, you have the opportunity to sacrifice for faith promise. This is the fund that we directly send missionaries. We give tens of thousands of dollars away a year to missionaries. And we do it through our faith promise account. We support a lot of missionaries for a church our size. And we don't do these little pittance things like, you know, 20, 50, 30 bucks a month. No, we do significant support to make a difference in the lives of these missionaries. And you can say what you want about American churches. Lots of people like to take pot shots at the American churches. But the fact is, in the providence of God at this moment in history, we are still the financial engine of the worldwide church. Hands down. You and I have the glorious privilege of suffering the loss of luxury, the loss of a better vacation, the sacrifice of a nicer, newer car, so we can support the work of the gospel. Again, where is the joy in our life? What is it that we love so much we are willing to suffer for? Is it the gospel? Is it to see the gospel expand in Orangeburg, in the southeast, in the mission field of America, in the world? Not what do we say is important. Okay, Enough of hot air Presbyterian church, right? Or Baptist church or community church, whatever. What is important enough for us actually to suffer for? Is it the gospel? Is it the spreading of God's kingdom? Is the gospel worth sacrificing to give above your tithe so this church can support more missionaries? Hey, money's tight, I know. Okay, one of the great things about not being Catholic but being a Protestant is not only not crawling upstairs on my knees, but I have a wife and kids. I understand, right? But God will empower you with joy when you trust him enough to sacrifice. That's the promise of today's text. When we choose to suffer for the sake of the gospel, we will find joy. So at the request of the missions committee, I'm just going to say it kind of like it is. We have got lots of folks involved in missions in our church. We are begging the Lord for more folks who are committed to missions. What do I mean by that? I want to give you a, a picture that hopefully you'll remember when it comes to faith promise. I want you to think of this picture right here. You've heard this joke, right? When it comes to breakfast, the chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. Your session, your missions committee is begging for more pigs at Trinity. People who are willing to sacrifice for missions. For the most part, there is not an adult in this room who cannot sacrifice a few bucks to support missions. It doesn't take much. Maybe you think, Pastor Sean, I can't. It's a matter of math. I'm just not able. That's fine. We can help you. It's time to sacrifice a bit of your pride and come and ask for help, and we can help you get on a budget. A budget is simply where you tell your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. We can help you do that. Most of us, it's not a question of ability. It's a question of willingness. I'm just going to ask the question that I believe this text allows me to ask. Do you love Jesus enough to suffer to see his gospel spread? To spend less money on yourself and your life and give it to missions? Are you willing to sacrifice for God's kingdom?
do you think the gospel is important enough and worth it? We have our faith promise cards. I believe they're out there in the narthex. You can look over that. You can take it and you can pray over it. We'll be passing about again next week as well. But I would encourage you to spend the next week in prayer. Lord, stuff's tight. You know what's going on in my life, Lord. I want to be obedient, but I just don't see it. Would you help me to trust you? And as Presbyterianly as you can, would you even say the words, Lord, would you please reveal to me a number that you want me to give? Because when we choose to suffer for the sake of the gospel, we will find joy. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you saved us while we were sinners by your power. And Lord, we praise you that you have all the money in the world, literally. You don't need our money. But we thank you, Lord, that you somehow in your providence, it grows us up and makes us more mature when we sacrifice. And so you have chosen to fund your kingdom through the sacrifice of Christians. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us that spirit of sacrifice. Lord, I pray against any spirit of manipulation here today. I pray, Lord, that people will not think for a moment that if they give the faith promise, you will love them more. I pray, Lord, that as those who rest in the gospel, who know because of Jesus Christ's work that we are fully accepted and embraced and loved by you, that no one can take us out of his hand, our eternal destiny is secure, that you not only love us, but you actually like us because of Jesus Christ. I pray that from that place of security, we would gladly sacrifice because we love you, not because we want to manipulate you into giving us a good life. Holy Spirit, do your work of conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.